Use code JACK250 to get $250 off to the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit. It's in New York in September, and ticket prices are only going up. Link is in the description. Over the past quarter, a spate of insolvencies has rocked the crypto world to its core. And yet, amid this run on the bank list, my guest today claims that his firm, an uncollateralized blockchain lending platform, has never had a single default on any of its loans. Naturally, I had a lot of questions. Please enjoy my conversation with Bill Wolf. I am joined by Bill Wolf, Chief Investment Officer of Trust Token. Bill, great to have you on Forward Guidance. Thrilled to be here, Jack. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Bill, you have a traditional background in finance. You're very into financial history, but you're now the Chief Investment Officer of a digital asset firm. Tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get into the blockchain? Sure. Well, as you say, my background is traditional finance, and I was an investment banker for 20 years. Uh, and then I went on a, a different traditional route, uh, working with some partners to found a, a, a specialty aviation finance leasing business. But really, my, my journey that led me to uh, blockchain and uh, in the crypto space was really some FOMO I had from back in the 1990s when I was observing the development of the internet and saw how powerful that was. And I had the opportunity and an inkling I should have gotten involved, but I didn't. And I don't have any regrets in my career, but uh, I'm, I think I'm now making good on something I wish I had done a long time ago, which is get involved in, in an emerging and cutting edge technology. Mm. And how did you first hear about blockchain? How did you get into it? And how have you evolved since you first started hearing about blockchain? And how has the space evolved? I heard about uh, Bitcoin and other related things around uh, uh, crypto and blockchain fairly early on. And frankly, I didn't pay any attention to it. And I frankly didn't understand it. And then uh, a group of guys that I spend time with uh, here in Silicon Valley and uh, do a little bit of fun investing with um, brought uh, to our attention uh, uh, the company that I'm now uh, a member of, uh, but initially um, as an investment. And we uh, looked at it and a bunch of us all invested in it together. And then I uh, realized that it was a traditional finance play and I could, uh, or at least it was a, uh, an emerging markets take on a traditional finance play and that I could add some value. So I invested and then became an advisor. And then um, during the time while I was advising the company, um, Trust Token, uh, I, it came time for us to uh, exit the business that I was currently working in, which is our leasing business. And I started thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I realized this was my opportunity to go back to the cutting edge that I missed out on 25, 30 years ago. And so uh, that's, that's what brought me to it. And it's been the most exciting thing I've done in my career. And I'm thrilled to scratch that entrepreneurial itch that I've, uh, I've had all along. So Bill, why blockchain? Well, so Jack, once I started digging into it, and I don't think I'm unique, a lot of people go down the rabbit hole and they start investigating it and they realize there's so much interesting about it. And as you mentioned at the outset, I am a student of financial history and a little bit of a geek in that regard. And as I got deeper into it, I realized that this wasn't just uh, a, uh, an interesting add-on evolutionary technology. I believe, and a lot of people believe, this isn't, uh, I'm, I'm uh, far from alone in this, this is one of the most important evolutions uh, in technology that's going to impact finance. And in, in my judgment of this, this may be one of the top five major innovations that have ever happened in finance. And including in that are such fundamental things that we take for granted that are centuries old, like dual entry accounting, like central banking, um, like fractional reserve banking. And so just like in the 90s, when I missed the opportunity on the internet, and a lot of people, a lot of smart people realized that 
it was inevitable that the internet was going to be a very productive and interesting place to move information, to conduct commerce, et cetera. Um, I believe, our company believes, and obviously uh, thousands of other people believe that, the, that blockchain and Web3 is going to be inevitable to be a fundamentally important and revolutionary, not evolutionary technology for finance. Right. And Bill, you know, obviously, I, I suspect that you believe that blockchain in many different applications of finance will lead the way. But what do you, what aspect of finance do you think is blockchain most applicable where it will cause the most disruption? Because, you know, let's say you know, you're, you're a student of, of finance, financial history. So your know, money, there's the medium of exchange, there's the store of value, there's the unit of account, there's investment banking, there's debt, there's equity. Uh, I, I suppose, you know, when Satoshi Nakamoto wrote the white paper, they were trying to solve the double spending problem. A lot of people who are very into Bitcoin now, they're more interested in perhaps the, the store of value. Where is the biggest opportunity for blockchain, let's say in the next three to five years, where do you think, you know, finance will not be the same because of blockchain? Well, I think there's a lot of them and probably there's more than we have time for in, in our chat to talk about. I'm going to focus on the one that I think is most interesting I'll start at sort of the higher level, which is the disintermediation of trusted institutions, where where you no longer have to have fabulous 100, 200-year-old institutions, or maybe you know just 50-year-old institutions that are the embodiment of why you trust and why you uh, are willing to transact with and, and trust your financial future, whether you're an individual or a, 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 a corporation or an institution. I think that's the, the most fundamental uh, shift in what's going to happen. So let me take that down a layer. And the area that I'm most focused on and what our company is focused on is in, is in debt and credit. Um, because right now, uh, the, the, the problem that we're working on and that we're trying to address is the overall corporate credit markets. And there's a bunch of different ways to measure it. But the way we look at it and the measure we think is most interesting is today around a $7 trillion market for corporate credit. Um, a lot of people in the early stages of DeFi or decentralized finance that's going on on the blockchain in the, in the crypto world first focused on uh, collateralized or over collateralized lending in that space. But that's a relatively small part of the traditional finance world in that seven trillion dollar uh, market uh, uh, number that I mentioned. Um, margin lending, effectively, which is what that is, or, or collateralized uh, lending of, of securities, is a relatively small part. So we're going after traditional credit-oriented space. I think that's going to be, and it's not going to be necessarily overnight. It's not the next. Uh, 12 to 24 months. I think this is a three to five years, um, uh, you know, rapid change. And then over time, just like the internet took 20 years or so to get to the stage that it's at today uh, of, of, of rapid evolution, I believe in 10 to 20 years, you will not recognize the way finance works. And that's not just our opinion. Major, major financial institutions, while they may be giving different signals to the public about it, they're spending lots and lots of money, millions of dollars in development to look at how they can future-proof their businesses from the evolution and the disintermediation that's possible um, in Web3. Mm. I want to yeah, highlight that distinction that you drew. So in the traditional finance world, credit is used by companies to do real things, to build a factory or refinance other debt. That is separate from margin lending where a trader, oh, I want to short this stock and I want to uh, get extra juice and go extra long on this stock. Uh, that is a fraction of the entire TradFi uh, credit markets. Whereas in crypto, it's my perception at least that the vast majority of crypto lending right now is about financial flows. And it's my perception that uh, the real world lending for blockchain, 
which when people hear this, they it may take them a second to get it because they may they may not, didn't know it existed. I didn't really know it existed before before I spoke to you. Is a small fraction. So roughly, what uh, how big is the crypto uh, DeFi and CFI lending market for finance? And then how big is the real asset blockchain market? Great question. So um, the the market that uh, developed first is the one you're pointing to, which is the on-chain uh, lending markets. There's the the collateralized portion, which I'm not going to speak to. And these are these fabulous uh, algorithmic uh, protocols for borrowing and lending on a secured and over collateralized basis like Avi and Compound. And, and that's a, a, a big business. It continues to be a big business. It's tens of billions of dollars. It shrunk a little bit just because the underlying assets that people were borrowing against is shrunk. Right. What, what we started out testing our technology on and is still an important business to us is lending on an uncollateralized basis on a credit and reputation basis, if you will, um, to market makers and delta neutral hedge funds in the crypto space. And we did that because it was a market that no one had addressed yet. And it was a, a, a chance for us to apply a traditional credit approach to this new market. Now, that market got to be fairly sizable. It turned into a uh, you know many billions of dollar market. That has shrunk also with the uh, downturn that's occurred in, in, the, uh, in the crypto markets, just because the demand for capital and also the uncertainty about you know, who's really uh, you know, deploying that capital in a, in a, in a productive way, in, in a way that's um, not uh, too terribly risky, um, has, has uh, d- decreased that a little bit. Much, much, much smaller and much more emergent is what you're referring to. And this is where we think the important development is going to be, which is lending against real economic opportunities. So not just the ref- self-referential internal crypto system, which doesn't necessarily generate any real GDP to your example of financing a factory. And so right now that real uh, GDP loans or, or real asset loans are, are it's just uh, you know, uh, low uh, millions right now. We believe that's where the incredible evolution is going to happen. But it's one where lots of pieces and block uh, and building blocks, if you will, have to be put in place for it to happen. And so we're working on some of those building blocks, both at the TrueFi level, which is that's our protocol, which is governed by our utility token, True, T-R-U. Um, that um, we're building a base layer of software using smart contracts and blockchain programming to allow people to come and uh, invest or lend money, um, have portfolio managers come and form portfolios, and then have borrowers who are looking for capital come and, and utilize that capital. So that's our base layer, and we're building that as, as one of the building blocks. We're also building on our corporate side, on trust token side, we're building additional software and services that sit on top of the protocol layer software to give additional functionality to those portfolio managers, to those lenders and investors, and to those borrowers. And so right now, that's a very small effort, and a lot of things have to be built. But our analogy we, we think about is, you know, we're early, you know, web 1.0 days, and the, and the business models and the innovations that need to happen to take us into the web 2.0 equivalent world, which is you now obviously we're talking about web 3.0, those things are being built. There's lots of folks doing what we're trying to do or doing pieces of what we're trying to do. Um, and, uh, and that composability and, and that uh, innovation is going to be dramatic over the next several years. Um, this downturn that's happened in the marketplace, while it's not ideal, uh, in some ways, it's analogous to the, the dot-com bust that happened where a lot of people created business models that weren't really productive. They weren't really contributing anything. They were riding the hype. Um, so a lot of that, uh, what I call the underbrush, is being cleared out right now. And the folks that are really trying to build something that is transformational and hard, quite frankly, um, uh, is going on right now. So it's very small right now. But we believe that 
five, 10 years down the, down the line in the same way that the uh, inevitability of, of the internet slowly started building. And so that, you know, e-commerce is huge today. We take it for granted. Uh, we believe that in finance and in lending, the sector that we're, we chose to focus on, that it will be huge and meaningful. And that will be a much more efficient way for people to form, manage, and deploy capital. Right. I, I guess the idea is if you're lending on on the block via the blockchain to for for real GDP loans, if lending to companies to make factories, in theory, uh, inher- in, intrinsically, it will not be correlated to the price of crypto. Whereas if you're making a loan against Bitcoin and you know the price of Bitcoin falls, you've got to liquidate the, your obligor. Uh, otherwise, you'll be in some trouble. Uh, of course, you know you are. I guess. Uh, dependent upon the capital to lend, and if there's inflows or outflows, and if there are a lot of outflows during a during a market route, that can be destabilizing. But yeah, who are the are you lend is is, is uh, TrueFi lending or Trust Token lending its own money? Is it uh, pooling investors' funds to lend to those businesses? And also, what sort of businesses are borrowing uh, real GDP loans uh, via your protocol? Great question. So, no, it, it's not our capital. I mean, we do do a little bit of dog fooding. We do have some of our own corporate capital, and we have at times deployed that into uh, some of the strategies that are being managed on the protocol. No, the investment are, are coming from investors, and these are the early adopters. Um, these are folks that are already crypto native investors. They've made money in other areas of crypto, and they've decided this is a place they want to stay on chain, if you will, and they want to find a, a yield. And initially, they were investing uh, into our, our funds and our portfolios that were um, lending into the market-making function because they understood that and they understood what that risk was. Um, and, and we've had a, a fantastic uh, track record in managing that. It's not perfect. There's no such thing as lending without some uh, bumps in the road. But it's not like some of these CFI lenders, if you will, that were lending into the blockchain and not doing it in a highly visible, transparent way. And they made some very uh, poor uh, uh, choices. So, so the, But the money is mostly coming from crypto. Native investors. We have some initial investors coming in who are not crypto native. And this is part of the building block point, which is we're having to help them with on ramps to come onto the blockchain to, to seek yield because traditionally they would go into just uh, normal digital approaches where they would go to a, what, what your, pick your favorite mutual fund complex or your favorite alternative credit manager. And they would uh, maybe there'd be a digital component to it, but it'd be a more traditional investment on ramping. So, so back to your point about what are some of the real opportunities that we're currently uh, doing that with, for th- with these uh, lenders and investors that are showing up on our platform. One of the best examples I can give you is, is in the fintech space. And that's an area that we think is an opportunity for us to address um, in terms of credit markets, because there's a very well-developed uh, mainstream corporate alternative credit market, meaning not the bank's lending, uh, not traditional capital markets uh, lending yeah. and, and bond market activity, but uh, but the tradition, uh, this alternative credit market. And then there's traditional venture capital and venture debt. Well, there's some holes in there for some of these newer business models that are not well served by those, those uh, traditional sources. We've identified some of those. It's not that those are risk-free, but they're interesting areas and they're real GDP um, in, um, lending areas. And one of the ones, the examples that we're doing right now in an area that we have to do a lot more of is we're lending to a payments and small to medium enterprise lending business in Mexico. 
And um, one of our portfolios lends to this business in Mexico. They take uh, a stable coin dollars, which are these are these are uh, digital assets that are represented by dollars in bank accounts. So they're stable. They're not going to go up and down because people know they can take them and exchange them for a dollar at any time. We lend those to this uh, this uh, fintech business in Mexico. They convert those into pesos, and they are uh, making money by uh, providing a service that's not well served by the banks in Mexico, which is for this small to medium inter uh, enterprise emerging customer to help them with payments and to lend them money on a very short-term uh, working capital basis. So that's just an initial example of that. We're doing some other experiments out there. We've launched a new fund, which is available to lend into real estate in the Austin, Texas market. Um, it's not traditional mortgage uh, lending like you would see because that's working very efficiently um, off, off chain. And over time, we think this is going to become more and more important as, as managers come on and demonstrate they can run a differentiated credit strategy on the, on the blockchain, do it in a highly visible, trans, transparent way, do it in a 24-7, 365 uh, a day uh, transacting uh, window. Uh, they don't close on, you know, at five o'clock uh, Eastern time and they don't uh, close on the weekends and they're open on holidays. And so uh, that plus the transparency, plus the efficiency of this uh, of this overall system that the blockchain provides uh, for transferring money, for knowing where your money is and being able to, uh, to transact real time. All those advantages we think are going to accrue and make this into a, uh, you know, uh, initially a tens of millions business, uh, then hundreds. And then again, on that five to 10 year uh, business, a billions uh, uh, and tens of billions business. Right. So when you're lending stable coins, which stable coins are you lending and what are those stable coins backed by? Great question. So, um, and this is an area where a lot of people who've studied this space know there, there's many different forms of stable coins. A lot of them get to claim the word stable, even if they aren't necessarily um, the most stable version of stable. The ones that we accept are true uh, dollar or fiat currency backed. They can be in currencies other than the U.S. dollar, but the principal ones are in U.S. dollars. And so our founding funds uh, that we, we uh, created, our founding pools, as we call them, um, uh, accept four major uh, stable coins. USDC, which is the stable coin found, founded by uh, our friends at Circle and Coinbase. Um, USDT, which is uh, the Tether stable coin, which is uh, very popular, particularly um, in some international markets like uh, Asia. Uh, um, US, uh, TUSD, which is actually a stable coin that we founded, our company, before we got into the, the lending protocol business, we created uh, the first institutional grade uh, stable coin by, by working with banks for them to, in the US, accept and, and for us to do real-time attestation so someone knows their dollars in a bank account um, in case they want to exchange it out. And then we also accept uh, Binance's stablecoin, BUSD. And so those are all ones that are all fiat-backed and very uh, stable, uh, truly uh, stable, stable coins. So people come and deposit those into the accounts, and then that's from there uh, uh, where we accept those. We're experimenting with accepting some other types of, uh, of, of currencies. We think the major part of this is going to be these stable coins. And, and eventually we think the, you know, the U.S. Treasury and the, and the Federal Reserve are studying stable coins. And eventually we think there will be a, a U.S. central bank issued uh, stable coin. Um, but that's uh, probably years down the road. And while they're working on it, these other ones are, are, are filling uh, that important building block component in the marketplace. Just walk us through the stablecoin ecosystem. Uh, I often hear it uh, uh, categorized into three categories, algorithmic, partially backed, and then fully backed. I would perhaps uh, also draw a, another dividing line in the last category between uh, fully backed and audited, which I think USDC is audited. I, I 
don't I don't think Tether is audited. I don't, I don't know about Binance Coin. Um, so yeah, in those four categories, where do you see the opportunities and and risks? Well, I, I think we've seen the risks in the pure algorithmic ones, and obviously uh, you're pointing to uh, the Terra and Luna blow up that happened earlier this year. Um, that was a absolutely fascinating um, idea and concept. It appears that it got exploited and, and attacked and it collapsed. It was an interesting idea. I'm not saying that those ideas aren't going to continue to thrive. There are others out there that are attempting to do that, um, uh, that sort of a method, but that obviously uh, presented with uh, extreme risks. And so we're not as focused on that. And, 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 uh, right. and like a lot of other people, we're very cautiously watching what happens in that. So that's in the pure algorithmic. In the partially backed, and, and this is, a, again, another area where there's lots and lots of players in this, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention one that we uh, uh, have a lot of uh, relations to, which is MakerDAO, which is a, a, a reserve currency. Um, you call it the partially backed um, um, uh, sort of stable coin. This is where people are trying to generate an alternative reserve currency where they um, issue their, their stable coin, if you will, uh, in return for people uh, 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 exchanging real world assets with them. Those could be loans. It could be a lot of things. Um, and that's, uh, again, an intermediate case here, which we think is also very interesting in MakerDAO, the, the organization, if you will, uh, behind the creation of, of MakerDAI um, has been very, very successful. We think that's an area that's going to be very productive and, um, uh, and interesting. But the area that's for us right now, just sort of our bedrock and that we're focused on is the is the third area that you mentioned and the one I was talking about before, which is these uh, purely uh, fiat backed in a bank account somewhere. And you talked about how there's different flavors of this. Certain ones have different levels of transparency. Uh, what we created and our, our friends at Circle with their USDC um, have a similar methodology. This is full transparency on this. And ours even goes to a, a, a different layer on that. We have a, an accounting firm, a major U.S. accounting firm that has the ability through uh, API uh, connections into the trust accounts where, where the dollars are deposited to see um, on a frequent and real-time basis exactly how many dollars are in there. And they then publish and attest to how many dollars are in there, which then gives the investor or the holder, if you will, of that stable coin the knowledge that a, a, a trustworthy uh, um, third-party source has said there are dollars there. You know your stable coin is worth a dollar because at any time you can go through the reverse minting process and turn in your stable coin and back into your bank account through wire transfer or ACH or however the transfer occurs, you'll have a good old U.S. dollar back in there. And so we think that's the most important one right now. And, and, the, and again, the enabler of this, because once you're in that stable coin, your transactability is real time and you're avoiding the working pretty well, but not, uh, but far from perfect um, uh, traditional system of finance, which relies on ACH transfers or wire transfers, which again is frankly um, programming and, uh, and, and computer uh, infrastructure that was built decades ago and that is very, very imperfect. A lot of people are trying to improve that and, uh, and maybe there's a way to bubble gum and rubber band that system to be as good and as, as perfect as the new system. But a lot of other people are making the bet as we are that the future is in, in the blockchain technology, um, which is, again, uh, also very difficult to work with, not perfect if you don't program it well and test it well. So a lot of these attacks and, uh, and, uh, and loss of, uh, of funds that you see happening is not because the technology promise is not good. Or, uh, and it's not that people have underestimated how good the technology could be. Uh, they've underestimated um, how difficult it is to work in this programming because this is very, very uh, complicated, difficult program. But pr programmed correctly, it is 100% uh, secure and uh, and people are protected against a 
loss. And so that's what we think is going to be the, the important sector to focus on and where we're, where we're really focused in terms of, of creating funds where people be able, are able to use those stable coins as their method of deploying their capital. Right. And then what are your views about those stable coins that are fully backed, but uh, they haven't done an audit? Uh, Tether comes to mind where they do they give an attestation, but I, I don't think they've given an audit in quite some time. And you know, in, in their assets that they hold, a lot of it is treasuries, then some of it is, is loans. Uh, a lot of some of it is digital assets. So it's you know kind of correlated where when the prices go up, uh, their the value of their uh, assets goes up, but when prices go down, the value of their assets go down. And I actually think that they did, you know, lend uh, or ha- they, they did have an asset that was in some way tied to Celsius, which I think recently uh, declared bankruptcy. So, yeah, what do you think about Tether? I, I think this is a caveat emptor uh, situation uh, um, uh, to your your point and to your question, which is is you're taking risk there. And remember, the risk you're taking uh, is that that you know, when you want your capital, um, there's not a mismatch between your desire to have it today or right now and when the assets that are uh, um, that are uh, have been invested in with the dollars that you put in there are available. And so uh, I, I think as long as the uh, uh, as the individual who's who's making the choice of which stablecoin they want to use understands it, um, then they know what risk they're taking. But remember, they're not getting paid for 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 that for that risk because the the interest uh, being earned on those stablecoins is is being uh, accrued to the the operator of that stablecoin. And so, if you're not getting paid for that risk, my question is is why would you take it? This is a personal preference thing, and I'm not going to disparage anyone else's choices. People are making that. Obviously, uh, Tether is a huge. It's still uh, today the largest uh, in terms of, of dollars uh, um, out there in terms of the minted uh, Tether coins. It's still the largest one in the world. Um, but uh, you've seen over time ones that are fully backed and and also in ones that are in much more liquid assets and not taking risk by investing in some of these these higher yielding strategies um, uh, are out there. One of the things we're crying for is more clarity uh, from the regulators. Don't go so fast that you create you know the wrong rules, but please go as fast as y'all can because you know we like a lot of the other players we want to follow the rules. But from from our standpoint, um, obviously philosophically we believe that they sh- uh, that the, the safest place to be and the best place for an investor um, is in these fully 100% backed, and that's what TUSD is, which is the uh, the stablecoin uh, uh, that that we operate uh, and that we created. And USDC is similar to that. USDC has been gaining ground because of the great distribution they get through Coinbase. They've been gaining ground on Tether steadily. And, and I think a lot of people are predicting that they will overtake Tether at some point uh, in terms of, uh, of total uh, dollars uh, minted, if you will, in stablecoin. Mm. Right. Thanks for Bill. I, I appreciate uh, you, you sharing your, your views on that. Let's move back uh, to your company it can be a little bit complicated, even if you're if you are aware of the terminology. So, Trust Token is the company, TrueFi is the protocol, uh, TUSD is the stablecoin that you guys issued, but True Token or is the uh, governance utility token. But then also you're a DAO. So ex- explain what's going on here. And it is complicated. And I think you laid it out very well. Um, but let's focus on the TrueFi side of it, because that is the base layer of what we're focused on. We, you know, we started with our stable coin. We're glad we created it. Um, it's got, uh, you know, um, uh, over a billion dollars of, of, uh, of minted coins out there. And it's an important player in the market. And we're proud of that. We accept other stable coins. But what we're really focused on is growing TrueFi as a marketplace. And what we're trying to do there is create a place that is totally agnostic 
um, it's an open marketplace where an investor can come and find a huge range of potential investment opportunities in, in terms of credit, in, in terms of looking for yield um, uh, to invest their dollars. Um, and so, uh, so we think of it as a three-sided marketplace. Investors or lenders show up to, looking for yield. Portfolio managers can come and use our software by literally pushing just a few buttons and making decisions and be onboarded onto the, uh, onto the protocol um, and, and say, I'm an expert in this particular type of credit management. Um, and so here's my fund and, and you know, here's what I'm doing and here's my disclosure around that. Um, you know, deposit your stable coins if you're, uh, if you're looking for yield. And then where borrowers who are looking for capital can come and find from any different uh, manager who's, who's expert at deploying capital into whatever space they're looking for capital uh, themselves to consume uh, can come and look for that. So that's the marketplace. What true is, is true is the, is the utility and governance token that runs our marketplace. And what it's entitled to economically is, is that when people run a portfolio um, on, on the TruePi marketplace, they pay a protocol fee. Now, we have some other types of economics, but I'm focusing on where we're going because this is uh, happening right now. So some of these new funds that I was describing to you that are doing the real-world asset lending, they are paying a protocol fee to the protocol. The protocol pays its expenses. It has governance. It is a decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO, which is a new form of organization, which you know uh, le- uh, lawmakers all around the world are going to have to figure out how they're going to regulate and interact with these. But it's a very uh, open, almost kind of like communal uh, uh, style of ownership uh, of this or governorship uh, of this protocol. And the owners of the true token are entitled to um, any uh, economic uh, uh, returns that happen above paying for the Dow uh, expenses. So theoretically, at some point, once we have a surplus of protocol fees after we pay the expenses for the Dow, we could either go out into the marketplace and buy in true, or we could distribute uh, the excess funds in the form of stable coins to the holders of true. And true holders get to vote on what happens. They get to vote on on who are the the the, uh, the board members of the DAO. Big important kind of um, you know overall meta issues or or or, or, or major structural changes will be voted on. Um, we don't expect the individual voters on true to vote on individual credit decisions or things like that because that's why the experts, the portfolio managers, are coming on there. Um, and so, so you know, at some, one point we had a vision and we wondered whether we could have them all the way down at the micro level. And some of our earliest funds, which are still out there and existent, we allowed the true holders to decide whether they wanted to stake their true against that to be a first loss in case there um, is a loss. We've had mm-hmm. no losses today um, uh, to the, the true holders, but they are able to stake their true in order to earn a little bit of uh, a share of the interest in, in, in effect, providing credit insurance uh, against a loss. But we think the long-term vision of that is for the true coin to be, uh, again, this participant in the protocol fees after paying for expenses. And that's what we think is going to drive the value. Right now, you know, we charge you know tens of basis points um, for the protocol fees in order for the portfolio managers to utilize the software to run their portfolio. Over time, as the business scales, our goal is for that to go down to very, very, very small, you know, single basis points, and maybe longer term when we get, uh, you know, to way down the road into the trillions, into you know fractions of basis points because because it will be such a large marketplace, you don't need to charge very much. Uh, so that people are enjoying that efficiency without very much of a drag in terms of of, of the expenses. Um, that's down the road. So that's that's the true FI side. Let me pause there and see if you want to redirect me in terms of talking about other parts. But but I realize it's complicated. And I hope I, I elucidated and did not confuse in giving that description. 
Yes, I think I sort of have a something that the audience doesn't. It's because you know, I, I've studied this before and we did a pre-interview. So I, I just want to make sure that people get it. So people own True, which is the utility token, and they essentially get to vote what the company does. It's essentially like you know, voting. If you have a share of Coca-Cola, you can vote on what it does. I mean, you know, often you know, people don't vote at all. If it's passively held, it's it's voted in the way that the directors want. But but that so but uh, so that's the governance token. That is a floating. It's not a stablecoin. It's a floating thing that's sort of quoted. Trade, market, trades in the marketplace so, goes up and down. Right, uh, right it's right. based on so, people's so views. Like, yeah, like yeah, almost yeah. every other crypto asset, you know that is is down. Um, you know somewhere eighty to ninety percent. Materially um, down. Yes. Yes. That, so that is materially down. Uh, so when you said you, that holders of true have not been subject to losses, I think you were referring to that there have been no defaults. The ones on who staked loan. exactly because okay, okay. exactly yes. Yeah. But if somebody bought True, you know, six months ago, just like uh, a lot of other uh, um, crypto-related assets or other tokens similar to ours, yes, they've definitely uh, you know lost money, which is obviously uh, unfortunate. It's you know again back to the analogy of the dot-com boom. There were a lot of early internet businesses that got ahead of themselves in terms of valuation, um, and obviously we think long-term True has a huge promise, and, and we think it's a very interesting protocol that will um, over time prove out its economic model, but. It is definitely down, uh, um, and all of us at the company are, are holders of, uh, of True, and, and, and we're right there with all of our, our independent True holders uh, licking our wounds uh, in, in that regard. Mm-hmm. But tell us about the credit losses, because you said that uh, the, your marketplace has never had a default, and... I definitely, I, I believe you, but I, you know, I also know that there's, there's something in the TradFi examples, for example, a triple A security never goes bad because before it goes bad, it's downgraded to double A and then single A. And then once it's triple C, then it defaults, right? So it, when you say it's never defaulted, what exactly do you mean? Great question. So we've not yet, uh, in our founding strategies, uh, I've mentioned the four stable coins, which are, are each uh, um, are depositable into four different of our founding pools. We've not had a default in any of the loans that we've made. And we've made $1.7 billion of loans since we started lending in November of 2020. Um, and we've had uh, um, an incredible number of repayments because our total loans outstanding today is probably somewhere in the 300 million range. I didn't click on my screen this morning to see where it is. We've had some repayments in the last week. And so we have a, a large amount outstanding. We've made a lot of loans across all of that activity. We've had absolutely you know, no failures in the software. No money has been lost from it going to the wrong place. And we've had no defaults. We don't expect we're going to have no defaults. And also, we have done some negotiations behind the scenes because that happens in credit markets where you talk to your borrowers and you say, hey, we want you to do this. Uh, or they say, hey, can you modify these terms? We have done some some uh, uh, some you know, behind the scenes private restructurings with people, but we've not had an official default. We will have defaults. Um, there is no such thing as defaultless lending. Um, that's not really a business. That's that's like you know lending somebody their own money, um, and you know they can pay it back to you because it was their money. Um, that's not a real business. But we have been very very fortunate, um, and, and and I would say we made our own fortune because we brought a serious credit diligence to this. And our, uh, we took a very traditional approach. We hired uh, folks with extraordinary experience in traditional credit lending, and they brought a traditional credit uh, lens to this. And there were a lot of people that applied to borrow money from us that we looked at it and we asked them for information. And either they didn't give us the information we wanted, or we didn't like what we saw, and we 
turned them down and we didn't lend to them. And so, so that part of that, you know, uh, why we, we think we've fared better than some of the uh, CPI lenders that have had run into trouble, et cetera, is because they either made really bad decisions uh, on a credit basis. I don't know what else to call it. Um, or they were taking too much risk for the wrong uh, uh, underlying return. And they were taking effectively equity risk for, uh, for fixed income or credit returns. And, um, uh, and they also had the classic mismatch of their, their investors wanted their funds on a short-term basis uh, uh, able to be repaid. And, uh, and, and some of these loans were being made on a longer-term basis. And they had the classic run on the bank and the funds weren't there. Um, but but we've avoided that so far because we don't have this uh, this same issue. We have put put in place mechanisms in our funds so that people realize that when there's liquidity, they can re- withdraw. But if the funds are loaned out, then then they can't get it at those times. But no one's had any trouble withdrawing from any of our funds when the loans come back in and they get repaid. The liquidity flows in and, and investors take money out and put in, and put money in. So that's how we've avoided it so far. I don't think there's any really other uh, magic to it other than than just you know blocking and tackling credit. Um, and, and that's the distinction between us and some of the, again, some of the CPI lenders that, uh, that you've mentioned that uh, have gotten in, in trouble. Yes. And so, as you said, you have four pools and some of those pools invest in only uh, DeFi and CFI, not real world stuff. Some of those pools invest only in real world, like the Mexican payments well, company, and some of them invest in both, right? What, what's the well, the four mix? founding pools do just invest in, in into the crypto markets, um, doing uh, uncollateralized working capital loans to market makers um, and to delta neutral uh, hedge funds. So that's what those four do. The, the, we have um, uh, a handful of other funds that are doing the, the real world, some of which we're the manager of. So the the uh, Fintech business in Mexico, we, uh, um, in, in our uh, internal asset management group, we are the, the fund manager of that. Then we have these other strategies that are outside of ours. We have a, a strategy uh, with a group called Carus, who's a, a great partner of ours. They're a portfolio manager who's currently running a strategy to lend to fintech businesses in the developing world. Um, again, that's going into real uh, uh, world applications and, and investments. And that's uh, an external portfolio manager. That's not us. That's a, a manager who's using the protocol and using the, uh, the underlying blockchain software. Um, but again, the, our four founding strategies that I mentioned um, are, are, are all in the uh, native crypto markets um, where most of our lending has happened. The, the real world assets business is still a small single digit millions uh, business um, on its way to uh, to growth. Mm-hmm. So the in, in the traditional finance markets, the maturity is, is how long the lender has borrowed the money, when the money is due back from the person who has borrowed. And that can be three months, it could be six months, it could be a year, it can be a fixed rate, it can be a floating rate plus a LIBOR or a SOFA or other benchmark, which is heavily influenced by the Federal Reserve. Um, what is What are sort of the terms that you're making? Let's stick to the non-real world, uh, uncollateralized lending that you're lending to Market neutral uh, hedge funds and delta neutral funds. What are what does sort of the terms look like? And if you know you see something that they did on their chain that you really don't like, you know, are you able to pull the money immediately? Uh, is it sort of a flash flash liquidation, or do you have to sort of really sort of work those phones to get the money back like over the next week? Sort of, what does it look like? Uh, great question. So um, the lending into those, and I'll mention a couple of names of the borrowers who've been b- big borrowers with us, because these are names in the crypto world that are very well known. Alameda, Wintermute are two of the uh, the big names that we've loaned a lot of a lot of money to. Alameda, of course, is the is the uh, hedge fund that's um, affiliated with and owned by Sam Bankman-Fried of, uh, of FTX fame. 
Yes. Um, and so our loans to them uh, um, are anywhere from 30, 60, 90, and as long as 180 days. Um, these loans are made to them uh, on a coupon uh, that's on a, a fixed basis uh, across that uh, relatively short-term loan basis. It tends to be in the in the uh, high single digits. When we first started with some of these borrowers, they were in the low double digits. But over time, as they've proven their ability to um, to repay um, and they have a good repayment history, and also uh, as they've increased the visibility we have into, into their finances and and sharing with us their financial uh, strategies and statements, and, and our doing analysis on that. That, their rates have come down. But to your question about, you know, can, uh, can we lend the money to them? And if, uh, if if we don't like what they've done, if we lend money to them on a 180 day basis, um, we don't get it back uh, un until 180 days and we can't recall that capital. So they, for working capital purposes, can plan on that and, and they know what they're uh, and they know what their cost of funds of, of that is. And obviously the activity that they're doing as market makers or in this, um, you know, uh, matched, uh, trading strategy where they're trying to, uh, you know, scrape, uh, inefficiencies out of the marketplace. Um, uh, but try and do that in a way where they're not taking risk. Um, they're making better returns than what we're charging them. Obviously, they wouldn't do that. And, and, and this working capital is a substitute for them putting in additional equity capital. And equity capital gets 100% of return of the profits. Um, and so they'd obviously rather use our capital than that. Um, but no, we can't bring it back in early. Um, but uh, but this has become a standard. We're not the only ones doing this. Other, we were one of the pioneers in doing this uncollateralized uh, lending. In fact, I think we were the first to do it um, on a on a blockchain, open, transparent way. Um, but it's worked really well so far. And, and again, the beauty of, of our protocol is you can go in and you can look at every loan that's ever been made to Alameda. You can see when they took it out, what the rate was, um, and when they repaid it. And you can see currently which ones are outstanding uh, to them. Uh, et cetera. What we don't share is the credit work we're doing behind the scenes. Um, and again, people say, well, what does that look like? Well, go, go to any of your favorite uh, uh, alternative uh, lenders out there. It would look just like the analysis that they're doing. And people are sharing that information with us. Um, the, the borrowers are sharing that with us on a confidential basis. We think there will be a lot of innovation about how credit um, uh, information gets shared and, and done in the future. A lot of people are working, uh, including in a very whiz-bang technolo uh, technology area called zero-knowledge proofs and ways to share information um, so that, that people can know that, uh, that the credit assessment has been done, um, but not necessarily know, uh, one, who the borrower is or uh, what that information was that was shared by that borrower and to do it in a way uh, that, that the credit work is done off-chain, but people can be assured that fundamental credit work has been done and, and that their money is safe if they deploy it into that account. But that's what we're currently doing, and it's worked very, very well. And this is this proof of concept that we think has made it uh, clear and compelling that this is an area uh, that's going to grow. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Uncollateralized lending on on the uh, face of it, uncollateralized lending is it sounds unsafe. And in in a vacuum, un, you'd rather be collateralized than undercollateralized. But the question is, would you rather be would you rather lend to a, a highly risky business on a collateralized basis or the, a blue chip firm on an uncollateralized basis? Uh, I can argue both sides of that. We've chosen to focus on an area that is fundamentally difficult, which is fundamental uncollateralized or undercollateralized work. doesn't mean there's not assets in the, in the mix there, but we're not counting on our ability to liquidate those assets to get repaid. We're counting on the borrower having a productive underlying business being able to repay us. 
Um, that is just the hugest part. That's that the vast majority of that seven trillion we talked about in terms of, of global corporate lending. That area is growing very, very quickly. Um, it's an area that um, investors up and down the, uh, the scale, institutional investors already have great access to that area. Uh, they're, they're the ones who are able to go to the very sophisticated, large alternative credit players. Name some of my favorites like, you know, like Blackstone Credit or Apollo or folks like that. Those institutions have access to that. Even high net worth individuals um, uh, um, have access uh, uh, to that if they go through some of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, sophisticated asset management platforms, et cetera. Making that more broadly uh, uh, available to, you know, maybe uh, accredited investors who aren't necessarily ultra high net worth investors. That's part of what uh, is the thesis of what we think this is doing because more and more people want access to that. They don't want to just go to their favorite mutual fund complex, Fidelity, Vanguard, you know, uh, Schwab, whoever it is, and just invest in the intermediate bond fund. That may be a part of their asset allocation, but some of them want to take a little bit more risk and get paid more yield and put that into the, the mix of their portfolio. And that's what we're trying to provide. And that's what we think uh, you know, is going to be compelling uh, as a marketplace. Eventually, do we think that there will be people um, managing you know, good old intermediate uh, investment grade corporate bond funds on the TrueFi marketplace? Yes, we do. Look, that's a pretty efficient marketplace right now. If you look at how little you know, Vanguard and Fidelity charge for that type of fund, it's very low basis points. And so that's a pretty efficient market. We need our marketplace to get a lot bigger and a lot more efficient before we think we're going to be competitive with that. That's why we're focusing on the higher octane more risk um, uh, markets that are, are not as well served and that have a, a more of an opportunity. Mm. Bill, let's say that I was the founder of a crypto platform that did very well during the, the, the bull market, but it, you know uh, had some liquidity issues and ultimately declared Chapter Eleven. And you know, folks to whom I owe money, my firm owes money. Uh, they are, they are not doing so well, and that includes the depositors uh, who are not FDIC insured. Let's say there's lender A that lent to me and they made a mistake because they didn't do rigorous credit analysis. And then there's you, your firm that, that you didn't lend to me. What are the red flags that you would have said about my firm that said, you know what, Jack's a nice guy, but we're going to pass on this? That's, boy, that's a great question. Um, it, it fundamentally starts at uh, uh, our, our, our credit diligence that we go through. Um, we don't have a formula for what we're looking for in a credit situation. So uh, if we would come to you, Jack, we would look at your business, have you explain our business, and then we would give you a diligence list of what we needed from you. And so the initial response is, and, and this happened during the bull market that, uh, that you know, was happening six, nine months ago. A lot of people were trying to break into the, the business of doing this kind of uncollateralized lending on chain. Some of them are, are, are into this marketplace. Some of them are doing it in a CFI sense, and that's some of the folks that, uh, that you've mentioned before that are, uh, that are struggling and, um, and some of which are in bankruptcy right now. Um, and some of them were on chain protocols. But there was so much competition to put money to work that some people were willing to do that without uh, looking for all that information. So our biggest red flag would be someone would say, well, we're not willing to provide that. And even scarier, we don't have that. Um, and so that would be the most uh, likely reason that we would say, you know what, this isn't a good fit. When you have that or when you uh, uh, are willing to share that, let's talk about that because uh, we, you know, we need a certain baseline of information based on who you are to do that. So that's the single biggest red flag. And that is still going on in the marketplace, which is amazing to us. Um, but I don't blame the borrowers. If somebody will give you money without putting you through the ringer and making you do a certain level of diligence, you know, it's not your fault for taking the money. It's somebody's fault for giving it to you. So un uncollateralized lending, you have to do rigorous analysis on your borrower. Whereas in, you know, over the Aave platform, if you're lending against Uniswap, 
as soon as Uniswap goes below five dollars, it's liquidated. Whereas- they don't care who the borrower is. That's the beauty yeah. of it. And, and again, we think this is a genius model. Uh, we think that is a genius model. The Aave and compounds of the world are fantastic. We think that will migrate over into, into tra- traditional margin lending, um, where eventually, let's assume that all uh, stock equities are tokenized and trading on the blockchain. We care deeply who these people are. You know, we call it credit uh, um, uh, investing, but it's also reputation and uh, and you know who they are. And so that's the the other red flag is is you know we we get into these diligence sessions and we're making a judgment on who these people are. We look into their backgrounds, we see what they've done, we see what their expertise is, and we're making a a, a credit bet on them. And so the other red flags are if we look at people and, and there's things in their background that we don't understand or that we think are, are red flags for reputational or, or character risk. Um, that's another reason for us to say you know this is not a good fit and uh, we wish you luck in finding capital somewhere else. Mm. Uh, and, and what is, so that's the risk of the the left tail risk where that you really don't want where you lend to someone and they don't pay you back. What about I guess it's called the right tail risk where the market realizes that yeah the person you're lending to they're they're good for it and then the yield goes way down and your opportunity sort of evaporates. Like you know Alameda like I know that Alameda is kind of like the JP Morgan of the crypto space. So if I know it everyone knows it. So so what's the risk of you know them saying actually we want to pay you 4%? So, so that risk is is real, and, and we think that's healthy, and that's okay, because that means that, that the underlying risk is being recognized by the marketplace, and the borrower is able to access capital at a lower rate. And so that's good for the lenders, investors who are showing up on our marketplace. And we want to have that whole continuum of risk. And so if Alameda gets to be a better and better credit, which they are uh, all the time, and their cost of borrowing goes down, then there will be funds uh, and portfolio managers uh, on the TrueFi marketplace who, who say, yeah, we're, we're going for you know, high-quality uh, market-making uh, lending and expect our coupons are going to look in that sort of you know, 4 to 5% range. But for more emerging managers who aren't the Alamedas of the world, um, we're going to ch- uh, there's other funds or, or maybe within that fund, they're willing to take more risk. So we view that as just a natural and healthy uh, evolution. And, and again, obviously, it's dynamic. And so over time, some people may become better credits, and then their fortunes may change, and they become riskier credits. And we think that that's what will make our marketplace work, which is, is the different managers who have different insights on that. The ones that succeed will come, and they'll be good uh, arbiters of, of that credit risk and good investors behind that. Mm, okay. And so let's say uh, uh, someone who borrows from you, they pay 9%. What does the people uh, staking their true or, or, or investing in the firm, the portfolio managers, what do they get? And does, does Trust Token, do you guys get a basis point spread, a percentage of the percentage, a flat out fee? How does it work? So, so here's the way the founding funds are set up and new funds are being set up slightly differently. The founding funds, um, 100% of the interest um, uh, goes to the investors with one caveat, which is true holders who want to stake and, and be the first loss in that they get 10% of that interest. So let's make a simple example. So uh, somebody makes a $100 loan, um, it's a 10% interest rate, and true stakers then come in and, and put up $10 worth of true so that the first $10 that get lost, uh, if there's a loss in, the, uh, in that fund, um, they're going to take that first loss. They get 10% of the interest. So in my simple example, $100 at 10%, there's $10 of interest. Uh, $1 of that goes to the true stakers, and $9 of that goes to the, the, the lenders into that fund. So that's how the founding funds were set up. There's no asset management fee. We're not charging an asset management fee for that because this was our proof of concept. Going forward and on our new funds that we're setting up or new funds that um, independent portfolio managers are coming to set up, there are two levels of fees. 
There's the asset management fee. So that's the manager saying, I'm really good at this credit and I'm worth 1% uh, of whatever uh, yield I create here. I'm going to charge 1% on the assets that you invest into my fund uh, for me to manage it. And there's the protocol fee on top of that because instead of my building out all the traditional infrastructure of running a fund, um, having asset management software, um, having having bank accounts that move the money around, et cetera, and all the layers that they need to have around that, instead, I'm going to use the True5 marketplace, and that's going to charge a certain number of basis points. So most of the new funds that we're doing right now are, are being charged 50 basis points to use the True5 software. So back to my simple example, so someone would pay 1% to the manager, and then 50 basis points, so one and a half percent. So if the overall target yield of the of the fund um, is 10 percent, well then uh, then the net yield would be about eight and a half percent after you pay the manager and you pay the protocol fee. Um, and so really good managers um, uh, who have really good returns, they'll be able to charge higher fees and, and garner more assets. And also, over time, we expect that the protocol fees will come down as the overall marketplace grows. Right now, um, we're pricing it around 50 basis points because that's a good place to, uh, place to start. We expect over, over time to be competitive. And particularly, we were talking about some of those you know, lower risk uh, strategies. You can't pay 50 basis points on a right. U.S. Treasury fund. Well, we don't have a U.S. Treasury fund today, you know, but if U.S. Treasuries are yielding two, three percent, depending on how far out on the curve you go, 50 basis points uh, of a protocol fee, that would swamp your yeah. returns. That wouldn't be competitive. So Earn someday when we have Earn U.S. Treasury funds on there, you know, those would probably pay, you know, two, three basis points or whatever, which again is equivalent to what you would pay to be in a U.S. Treasury mutual fund, you know, in terms of, of overall expenses. Um, uh, you know, uh, against that yield. So, so anyway, hopefully that outlines kind of how the economics would work and yeah. what what the investor or lender would would pay when they show up uh, um, it, on the it, marketplace. It does. Thank you. So, there's some who pay no fees and some who are paying the fifty percent, uh, fifty basis points plus. Uh, and those no fees things, we're going to sunset that. That was, you know, uh, call that sort yeah. of, uh, um, you know, early days. We're discounting the fees all the way to zero um, for the asset management because we wanted people to come and see that and experiment that. They've obviously seen that we've generated great returns with very low credit uh, losses so far, zero. Um, and so hopefully um, they won't be surprised when we say, you know what, now we're going to charge for it. That was the early days. So, you know, think of it like, you know, uh, in the early days, you got free shipping uh, in e-commerce when that first came on. And then eventually, uh, you know, you had to pay for shipping because they were no longer um, uh, giving sort of, uh, of discounts on that. Right. OK. And then the folks who are staking their true and they they get the they pay the first in credit losses. What is the definition of a credit loss? Obviously, a default is a credit loss, but you've never had defaults. What if, you know, is, is it marking something down from $100, a loan from $100 to $90? Is that a loan? How do you, you know, how do you decide to mark it down? Um, you know, like in, there's a, in traditional finance, there's tons of examples of things that were priced at 100 that, you know, ultimately, ultimately went, went to zero. So how do you go about sort of marking stuff down? And then also, you know, if, if the longest that you're lending in some cases is, what you say, 180 days? Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how does that happen? And have, so, have there been losses? You know, there ha there have not yet. There have not yet. And and again, I I know I'm, I'm sounding like a broken record. I keep saying this. There will be losses. There is no such thing as a lending business without with without uh, credit losses. But here's what would happen is if one of our uh, borrowers came back and said, you know, I owe you, uh, I'm using silly numbers, hundred dollars, but I can't pay all that back. I'm gonna only pay you 95 back. So what would happen would be if that loss on that loan. That first, you know, that $5 loss would be in the founding funds. This is not how all funds are going to be working going forward. Just in our founding funds, the folks who stake their true, they would be the first loss uh, against that. 
But that's um, never happened, you're saying? That's never happened. And so, so far, those folks that are staking true um, uh, um, have been uh, earning that interest and just getting pure interest for providing credit insurance that haven't been called on. But insurance that hasn't been called on doesn't mean the insurance was mispriced. It just means it had, the event hasn't happened yet. Right. Well, that's interesting because I've seen a lot of other f- folks struggle because it's been a very, you know, as, as crypto prices have fallen and as there have been, I guess, net outflows instead of net inflows, that has been a hostile environment for investors, not only who are buying the, the equity of, of the tokens, but people who are lending, who are, who are doing the lending. So, you know, how is it that you've never had a loss? And also, are you saying that there's never been anything? Uh, there's never been anything other than the follow scenario in that they pay you back. Like you've never, they've never been paid early or nothing. Not, not so far. Well, well, we had one loan actually in early, and and, and thanks for calling that out because. Um, uh, we were lending to a borrower who was part of the Three Arrows family. And as soon as Three Arrows hit the news, and this is, uh, I can talk about this because this is public. Um, we, we're an, uh, we're an active credit manager for the funds that we run. And any portfolio manager we bring on, we would assume they would do the same, even if they were independent uh, of us. And so our uh, head of, uh, of credit and head of lending immediately went into action and arranged for that loan to be repaid um, uh, uh, you know, early. And so it was a, it was an early repayment because we just said, look, we don't know what's going to happen with you all. And again, they were not three arrows. They were a, a, a fund affiliated with three arrows and we, uh, and they were on our user interface. You can see that we had a loan that was uh, guaranteed by three arrows and it was repaid early. That's called good credit management. We went in and yeah. said, let's not wait to see what happens. Let's deal with this now. And so, so, so again, no losses on that. Um, uh, that was, that loan was, uh, you know, repaid, uh, uh, in full back to the fund. Um, and so, uh, uh, so there was no loss in that instance. That's why we're able to say there's no defaults. That doesn't mean we didn't take real uh, proactive uh, stand, uh, um, action in order to uh, head that off. And, and that's and we're and we, we're probably doing that behind the scenes. Not probably we are doing that behind the scenes. We're constantly monitoring uh, our, our loans. And so while someone isn't obligated to pay us back early, that doesn't mean we can't go and have a negotiation with them and say, hey. Does it make sense for you to repay early? Because um, you know uh, you want to keep your your borrowing reputation intact, and so that that uh, um, affiliate fund that was borrowing from us, their reputation is intact. Um, their 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 parent company, Three Arrows, is going through issues, but those folks did uh, we think a very smart thing. They said we have the liquidity, uh, we uh, we're happy to enter into that transaction with you, and so they kept their borrowing reputation and their credit intact by doing that. We think that was a smart move on their part. We think it was a smart move on our part. Mm. And are the loans that you make, are they, do they have the same legal, uh, legal binding power as a mortgage or a corporate credit line? It's, it's first lien. If someone trying does default on you like, and you go and you walk into the courtroom, is the judge going to be like, what's this crypto thing? You know? Great question. So yeah, yes, we are, we, we are lending under the same types of legal agreements that all loans are made under, whether whether you, know, you talked about a mortgage, but you know we're not directly. We have a portfolio manager who's who's running a mortgage-related strategy, and they're using traditional mortgage documents. For our lending, there is a master uh, lending agreement, um, which is a traditional legal lending agreement. And if somebody defaults, um, we will go into court, and uh, it doesn't matter. Um, you know there are actual entities underlying these, and there's a lot of complexity about what the entities are. They're actually the ones signing these agreements. I don't think that's uh, useful for our discussion here today, but that entity goes in and they will have 
full and true standing in that court. And no, the judge won't say, oh, no, you, know, you, you guys were you know, from that gambling world of, of, of crypto. You don't have any standing. They will say, I recognize you and, uh, and, and we have true legal standing. So it's, in that sense, it, um, uh, if there is a, a deficiency claim, meaning somebody's defaulted and we have to go pursue it, we'll have the same uh, standing as somebody who is just a traditional lender. Okay. And then I know that uh, uncollateralized means there's there's no collateral, but is there sort of a hierarchy? Like, are you in the, the middle or the bottom of the capital stack? Where obviously you're above someone who owns equity in a company, you're, you're above them, but who are you below? Are there people who are like the first lien, you know? Depends on the lending. So yeah, so sometimes we come in and we, and, and that's part of the credit analysis we do. We look at the uh, the liability stack and we see, you know, is there anybody secured above us? Um, where are we? Are we just above the equity? And then we craft the legal agreement to conform with where we're comfortable being in that risk. And so sometimes we say, you know, we need to be peri passu with everyone else. So if we're an unsecured lender, there's nobody who's secured above us. Um, and so that all the assets are going to be carved up with us as a class with all the unsecured lenders. And so, uh, again, it's case by case, but, um, but we're very careful about that lending agreement to make sure we know where we stand so that we feel like we're pricing our loan correctly based on who's ahead of us and who's behind us. Mm -hmm. Do you think about, I don't know what to call it, maybe correlation risk? So, for example, an NFT company, a company whose you know, their business is lending money against people's NFTs, that's probably going to do pretty good in the bull market, probably pretty good from January 20. 2021 to November 2021. But I can imagine that, the, I'm just throwing this out, I'm not saying any company, but uh, that that type of business is, is one that will struggle as the prices of tokens go down. So do you sort of view it as, you know, if you're lending to an oil company, you want to have them hedged or something like that? Um, yes, we do. And we think about correlation risk, both in each individual um, uh, loan that we're making out of our credit strategies. Obviously, we rely on if it's an independent portfolio manager running their strategy, we're going to rely on them to be thinking about that. Um, and we, you know, we uh, we obviously, you know, uh, onboard and, and, and uh, diligence those folks. But at the end of the day, they're their own credit experts and they're going to stand or, um, or, or fall on their own reputation. But when we're managing the underlying credit, we do think about that. And we think about, you know, is there is there risk uh, in terms of the overall levels uh, of the marketplace? We also think about it in terms of whether are we lending to somebody who is effectively doing the same trade or same activity as everybody else? And so that even places where we're not loaned into, there's too much credit extending into this space. That's kind of a reference back to the, uh, and again, students of financial history will remember the long-term credit uh, management meltdown in the late 90s that happened, where it turned out that they, who were supposed to be the smartest investors uh, you know, uh, ever, ever assembled, a bunch of Nobel Prize guys, they were doing strategies just like everybody else was all around Wall Street. And so when the market started to crash, everybody you know, tried to exit and, and get liquidity at the same time. We think about that all the time. And a part of, of why some of our growth um, may have been slower at times very deliberately than some of our competitors was because we said, we got to be careful here because if there is a downturn, um, there's going to be everybody heading for the ex exits at the same time. And so again, individual correlation or the asset correlation to the overall markets, we, we think a lot about that. Our founding strategies were very asset agnostic because the way people were making money that we were lending to was ma in making a market and that's why, hence why they're called market makers, obviously. And so they weren't making money whether the asset went up or down. They were making money from uh, from making the market between the buyer and the seller and earning a spread on that. And so mm -hmm. that's a volume and volatility-based business. 
um, which uh, again, um, you know, can be subject to market conditions, but we were comfortable that these market makers um, were, were uh, doing it in a way that they weren't taking a view either way. They weren't long and they weren't short. They were uh, simply providing just enough inventory for them to uh, make orderly market flow. And that's a good business. And particularly a good business in a new market like uh, like crypto, where the underlying trading was inefficient. Over time, we don't, uh, you know, we think some of those returns will get competed or arbitraged out of the market. Um, but right now, that's still a, a a good business, and that's why you see us still lending into that space. Right. They uh, market neutral means they are neutral on the delta. They don't make money if it goes up or down. But they, it is dependent. Their business is affected by you know how many people are trading. Are volumes Absolutely. high? Is volatility high or low? Uh, so there are uh, risks. There are things that are better than others. It's just it's just not the direction of of any underlying token, um, Bill. So if, if I were to look at like let's say year to date total return index for a, a ultra short income fund, it's essentially flat on the year for TradFi. I'm just yep. I pulled up an ETF. Uh, what would the returns look like for TrueFi, and uh, do you think those returns are sustainable? Great question. So they would look like over the life of, of our doing these funds, and you can look at this and calculate this. It's high single digits, um, you know, maybe maybe approaching um, you know around ten uh, percent. And the reason for that is because if you look at the market cycle we've been through, those were fantastic years. Exactly the point you were talking about in your last statement. There was a lot of volume. There was a lot of people making a market, uh, and, and there was a lot of demand for capital. Um, and so that's why we made those returns. Long term, in this specific uh, area, that shouldn't exist because the trading should get more efficient. Um, there should be more competition for making that market uh, over time. And those spreads that those people that are able to earn in doing that riskless um, market facilitation, that should come down. And as a result, they shouldn't be able to pay us you know, high single digit, low double digit uh Cost on the interest, so I do. I don't necessarily think that's going to be around. Um, now, uh, um, now o- over times of volatility and times of market dislocation, maybe those market making spreads do uh, expand back out, and and that demand will come back. So we think that's an important market. We think it's a market that gets efficient over time. So I don't think you should expect to see those returns. But again, as the risk comes down, um, so will the uh, so will the returns. That what we hope and what we are, are, are working on in our business development areas is finding new managers that are finding new and interesting emerging areas to uh, uh, deploy capital into, like the fintech business in Mexico, uh, like that unique mortgage structure, like the folks at Caras who are doing the uh, the lending into the emerging markets um, um, in, in fintech businesses and emerging markets, uh, somewhat similar to what's going on in, in Mexico. We think those are will be interesting areas. They're not risk-free. I mean, these are new credit and balance sheet-oriented businesses um, that that have higher higher risk because they're inherently um, playing into markets that banks have not figured out how to how to efficiently serve. But that's where people are going to find the interesting returns. Um, so so again, uh, but on our founding markets, uh, to, back to your uh, your underlying question, we think those returns over time will will will, will go down because the risk is going to go down and the market's going to mature. I know we don't you don't want to not name names. I'm not going to name names, but you know the companies that are are no longer here that have uh, gone through insolvency. What do you think uh, are, are the practices or that they did? In other words, why do you think they got themselves in the situation? And you know, why why are you here? Why is Trust Token still here, still doing a podcast? You know, what was it? Was it those companies? Did they did they hire too fast? Did they not keep their costs under control? Did they want to grow too fast? Did they not secure a stable uh, source of funding? Perhaps it's all of those. But I just love if, if you could share your thoughts on that. You bet. Um... Well, so uh, the one I want to hit on first is, is, is something you just talked about. Um, we think a lot of them were too focused on growth. 
where in effect, they were catering to their equity holders who wanted them to grow their asset center management very, very quickly. And how do you do that? You take more and more risk. And so in effect, um, their, their lenders, their investors who were providing the capital um, that they were going to then loan out, they were um, being uh, subordinated, if you will, to the desires of the equity holders of, of those businesses. So that's one of the fundamental things that happened there. Um, uh, uh, that the desire for growth outstripped the, the prudence of, of, of what's a safe way to grow quickly. The other thing that I think is different about us and them is that if you look at it, the vast majority of the businesses that have failed were centralized businesses. They weren't using the blockchain for its transparency and its openness to run their lending strategy out in the open where everyone could see it. They were running huge books, in some cases, tens of billions of dollars of lending, but you didn't know what they were doing. And, and so that, that was them taking advantage of this very interesting high growth market that was happening, but not taking advantage of the best part of the technology, which is to create trust through transparency um, and immutable um, record of what's happened so that nobody can ever change that and you'll know exactly what happened. And so I think that's the other reason that we would point to is that the, the protocols that have survived and done well, and some of these are our competitors and we think very highly of them and you know, we enjoy competing with them every day. People like Maple and Goldfinch and Centrifuge, um, we're, we're all the ones who are still out there because you could see exactly what we were doing. Um, and you couldn't see what those centralized finance folks were doing. And they were trying to grow to make money for their equity holders. And they were raising tons of money and there was lots of venture capital. Um, and they made bad choices. They also ran into the other thing that you talked about, which is the classic, um, uh, you know, duration mismatch, which is they were promising their investors could have their money back on a short term basis. Um, but they were making loans on a long term basis. And that's just what happened in the financial crisis before. And so in a lot of ways, they just replicated what happened in the great financial crisis, but they were doing it in the underlying crypto markets. That's my best description I can give of it. I mean, uh, you know, uh, lessons like this, bubbles, um, excitement, ex uh, irrational exuberance, uh, to use a, a, an old term from uh, from the dot-com bust. Um, uh, you know, these are things that, unfortunately, these are cycles that repeat themselves. Um, and it comes back and people will start saying it's different this time. And unfortunately, in this instance, it was not different. Mm. Yeah, so it, it was not. Uh, Bill, how do you see this the space evolving? You know, I, I know earlier you said that you see the future as blockchains as people not having to trust institutions. Um, you know, there was a quite outspoken uh, a founder of a company uh, who yeah who said you know banks you can't you can't trust the banks. Um, that person's the, the people who put money in them that you know that they they have to go to bankruptcy court you know again because. Uh, all, all assets in crypto, or almost every asset in crypto, is not FDIC insured. Um, so the word deposit may not be appropriate. It's more like lenders or, or investors. Um, yeah, how do, do you do you? Uh, uh, how do you see the space moving forward? Given that there have been so many folks, you know, who have lost money, or or at the very least have had their money tied up because you know they did trust these CFI companies. Um, obviously, you know, I, if if uh, it works. What you say is true about Trust Token. You know that, that's great, but you're only one company in a, in a right. sea of companies that you know. There, there are many companies that have have suffered. So, how do you see this, the space sort of moving forward? Great question. So, look, I've, we're all going to pay for the sins of others, um, and so uh, it's absolutely true that a lot of people are looking at this and saying, "Gosh, these guys were not telling us the truth. They weren't doing what they said they were doing." Um, and and uh, and because we're next to and adjacent to them, we're gonna we're gonna pay the price for that. 
um, in the same way that the dot-com bust blew out a ton of people who didn't really have a business model. They literally just attached, you know, dot-com to their business. And, and that's similar to how, how uh, a lot of the people that fail were saying, oh, I'm crypto. Um, but they weren't really using the power of the underlying technology. So, so to your question, what do we think is going to happen? We think there's going to be a, a, a rebuilding uh, of, of trust and a rebuilding of understanding the differences between what did go wrong and why did it go wrong? And, and again, those of us who are using the technology in a transparent way. Um, and so we're working really hard to make the distinction. That's why we're saying, you know, we're not a crypto company. We started our strategy by lending into crypto market makers, et cetera. We're a blockchain company. We're using this technology to build something that is better than the traditional rails that exist in finance right now today. And so we think it's going to be a while before the dust settles and people see how these bankruptcies work out and that they also are able to differentiate what we're doing from what others were doing. And we're going to keep building. We're in the background. You know, this is obviously the part that no one sees. We're working on new iterations and new power of our technology. We know it's something that uh, that's going to that the traditional finance world is interested in. How do we know that? We're talking to all the major players. I won't mention any of my favorite names. Think of your favorite investment banks and major money center banks. They're all experimenting and looking at this too because they want to try and build their own private walled garden version of what we're trying to do, which is a debt marketplace. Um, and so but what we believe it should be is one giant uh, open marketplace. And again, we don't think there's going to be just one of them. We think this is not a winner take all market. We think there will be a bunch of players that can participate in this. But we think slowly investors will look at it and say, ah, this is different. That's not what those centralized folks were doing that were not telling us exactly what they were doing and that were making poor credit choices and taking too much risk. And this is just a, a, a place where good managers can come and, and build their business and be a portfolio manager. Um, it, you know, I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but the big, the big sort of uh, inflection point to look for is when a major existing player says, you know what, I'm opening my fund on the TrueFi marketplace. Um, so somebody who's got a huge TradFi reputation. Uh, um, I can't tell you when that's going to happen. I can just tell you we believe that will happen because they, they'll, they'll look at our software and they'll say, yeah, that's much more efficient than how I'm currently running my business. And that transparency and that 24-7 uh, transactability, I want that. That's when you'll see the real inflection point. Um, that, 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 that won't happen tomorrow. Uh, that may not, may not happen in the next few months, but that uh, we believe is what's going to happen. That's where we see the business going. Um, there's a chance that you'll see some privately built uh, um, uh, um, platforms that try to do this. We still think the open, public, not owned by anyone, rent-sinking central party is the best way to do that. Um, the analogy we think of that is sort of like some of these open uh, financial market utilities. If you think about uh, the DTC, the Depository Trust Corporation, which is the, mm -hmm. the, the uh, consortium owned by uh, major brokerage houses um, to exchange and, and transfer uh, um, securities amongst themselves from a custody basis. That's kind of how what we think TrueFi is in, in terms of a, of a marketplace for people to manage and exchange uh, um, credit um, on the marketplace. And so that's that's where we think it's going to go. And we've got a lot of hard work to do and a lot of building. And we've got a lot of, a lot of explaining to under, make people understand because when there's a, when there's a train wreck, everybody says, Oh, all trains are, are not safe. And that's not, that's right. not the right conclusion to take. And, and I appreciate you, uh, having us, uh, on here as a company to, to tell our story because, uh, through a great uh, podcast like yours, this is the place where we're going to have trad five folks, um, uh, and, and, and uh, early adopters come and look at this and say, Oh, that is different. Maybe I should give that a look. It's been my pleasure, Bill. Thank you for coming on. Uh, my final question, you know, I, I do have a macro podcast, so I have to ask you a macro question is, how do you think about the Fed, Federal Reserve, 
uh, specifically the fact that interest rates are now higher. You know, you're a chief investment officer of, of your firm and you have a storied uh, career in traditional finance. Uh, that, that high single digit returns, those are impressive regardless of whether 0% or 3%. But at, when interest rates are at 3%, um, you know, maybe folks are, they still want to get into that 9%, the high single digits, but they're, they're like, hey, the Treasury is giving, the, the Fed is giving me 3%, you know? Okay, so great question. I appreciate I appreciate you asked me uh, uh, for my crystal ball view, and my crystal balls is as hazy as anyone else's, but that won't stop me from talking about it. So, what we think is going to happen is that we think there will be an expansion of, of the uh, uh, of the rate and an expansion of spreads over Treasuries. Obviously, um, our marketplace somewhat was dislocated from references to traditional benchmarks like the U.S. Treasury because there was a lot of capital flowing into it. We think that compressed spreads artificially. Um, we think that uh, if, if as the Fed continues to raise rates, which is obviously what the market expects them to do, there will be a continued widening out. And so those high single digit returns will have to, to your point, they'll have to expand into low double digit returns because people will just say, I'm taking more risk. I need to make sure I'm getting paid for it. And so that's that's what we believe is going to happen. Um, uh, it, that partially that depends on the supply and demand in the particular markets of whoever is you know, managing a fund on our, our marketplace and in our founding strategies for the ones going to the crypto markets. That will depend on what the supply and demand of the capital is. So if it doesn't expand, as I just predicted, that's because more capital was there and people were, were willing to you know, take a little bit less uh, payment for what is obviously more risk and um, uh, compared to where they, uh, they could have gone to the risk-free uh, return before. I, I don't know if that satisfied your 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 your, your macro uh, um, question there, but uh, that's 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 my bet is is Fed keeps expanding, rates will have to expand out, otherwise risk is being mispriced. Right, right, and, and in, that will uh, non not just crypto spreads, but high yield spreads and tradfi, li- yeah, investment grade creds. Um, well, Bill, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. My, thank you so much for having me, Jack. Uh, I really enjoyed it. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.